You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. DOA 35 Heavy, could you give me your location? Minneapolis, we are currently heading zero. DOA 35, turn to heading. My God. Jesus, down. Go down. For Flight 35. We are going down. It was the end. Not be afraid. Or was it? Walk towards the light. What unusual facts have you developed in your investigation? This crash has been crazy from the start. Is there anything odd? Going backwards. I'm afraid I still don't know what you're driving at. I'm simply looking for the inexplicable. I usually find it. Endangering a project that's bigger than you can imagine. I know damn well we can't change the past. Time travels. You don't want to be found. Then you are from the future. About a thousand years. Sherman, send the gate. Once in a thousand years comes an adventure like this. We've been expecting you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Good to be here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Sci-Fi December rolls along with a look at 1989's Millennium. Directed by Michael Anderson, the film stars Chris Christopherson as an airline disaster investigator who stumbles onto something unexpected at the site of a mid-air collision. It will lead him into a tangled web of time-traveling shenanigans. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Millennium yet and you want to do so, I'm not going to stop you, so go right ahead. Chris, when was the first time you saw Millennium, and what did you think? I think the first time I saw it was when it hit cable, so, I mean, at that point, what was it, six months after it left theaters? At least. Yeah. So, definitely like an HBO kind of situation. The poster didn't do anything to pique my interest and the trailers kind of made it look unpalatable i guess is a good word so i i had no interest but when i actually sat down and watched it i'm like oh there's a there's a solid story going on here jed how about yourself my experience is kind of the opposite of that i when it came out uh i saw trailers for it and you know i was a teenager and they absolutely riveted me. I was like, this movie's going to be amazing. I was very excited for it. Um, I didn't actually see it until it was out on, uh, you know, VHS. So some point, probably a couple years after its release, I did see it. And I kind of thought, what just happened? It was not really what I was hoping it was going to be. And it still isn't, but I will say that I've watched it uh, a handful of times in the uh, intervening years, and it's it's steadily kind of gone up in my estimation, though there's some kind of wonky stuff uh, (laughs) about it that, I don't know, maybe I just find it more charming now than I did uh, when I found it disappointing as a a kid. I think I saw this one... 
Yeah, maybe cable, maybe VHS, and kind of like you, Jed, it's one that I go back to every once in a while because I kind of forget what the movie's about. And it's like, what was this one again? It seems like I should like it. I mean, Chris Christopherson, time travel, there's got to be something here, right? And then I'll watch it, and then I almost forget about it after I watch it, and then we'll go back to it again a few years later. It's almost like a fresh experience for me. And then with this viewing this time for this episode i was really trying to pay a lot of attention also compare it against the book the short story the screenplay read a lot about it so the more i read about it the more it feels like there was or is something there but it didn't necessarily translate to the screen as best as it probably should have i like this whole idea though of starting it in an airplane and they're having a mid-air collision and for 1989 i have to say pretty good the way that this is especially when the airplane explodes even though you can kind of tell it's like sitting stationary <laughs> someplace it looks like maybe a model but it's a really good model when it just explodes uh, someplace uh, it kind of looks like on the ground but this idea of the two airplanes running into to each other and just how horrific that should be and all that. I, I thought it was a good idea. And this whole idea of uh, Chris Christopherson being this NTSB guy coming out and doing the investigation and just the way that the crew has to work and that they have these two accident sites and they have to put pieces back together. It's almost like a CSI for airplanes. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that part of it. The only issue I had with it was the the lower plane said we hit them when clearly the plane that came into view was the one that hit them since they were going faster. It seemed like that's a bad call for insurance purposes. You yeah, that you hit them. <laughs> <laughs> they have the landing gear out. They're coming down at an angle, and clearly they overtook the other plane, and they didn't see them. They never talk about the black box from the other plane. That would have been interesting to hear as well. But it was nice to see there's no sci-fi weird Aurora Borealis interference. It was just overstressed uh, air traffic controllers. And I'm trying to remember, this would have been, well, a few years post the breakup of the air traffic controllers, which I think we were still feeling the effects of that whole thing of uh, uh, Reagan basically breaking up the strike and saying, fuck you to the uh, air traffic control board and just getting rid of people and bringing in a whole new bunch of air traffic controllers. This morning at 7 a.m., the union representing those who man America's air traffic control facilities called a strike. This was the culmination of seven months of negotiations between the Federal Aviation Administration and the union. I would like to thank the supervisors and controllers who are on the job today helping to get the nation's air system operating safely. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. I guess I'm maybe the first one to ever hold this office who is a lifetime member of an AFL-CIO union. But we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning they are in violation of the law 
And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Then as the movie goes on, you start to question that, uh, you know, did, did, I guess we got to jump ahead a little bit for me to say this, but did they put the plane back exactly where it was? Because he says the numbers, they switched and it was all different. I like the fact that the future people are a little incompetent on top of everything else. It sort of lends this layer of of desperation to them that they have to do it, but they're ill prepared for it in in a way. The whole idea for folks listening at home, the whole idea is that these airplane crashes are being infiltrated by people from the future who take off all of the passengers that they can possibly take off and put them into the future world and put them in holding pens, which sounds a little bad, especially, you know, (laughs) thinking of, of immigrants and stuff, put them in the holding pens. Then they will bring in all of these fake bodies and put all the fake bodies, which they call wimps for whatever reason, put the fake bodies in the plane, which has to be an incredible thing to do because they basically they're close enough to the people and they count on the planes being destroyed so that the bodies can't really be tested. But they apparently they go all out and they do like dental stuff and DNA stuff. And it feels like if they had the technology to create these new people that aren't quite people that they would have the technology maybe to fix the environment, because that's the whole thing is they're bringing all these people forward because their world sucks and they want to keep the human race going. Depending on what you read, whether it be the short story or the book or whatever, they have different ideas of what they're going to do with these airplane crash victims that they are holding in the future. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated thing that they're doing by replacing all these bodies. It's pre-Jack. <laughs> Pre-Jack? I love it. <laughs> and then they always run the risk of screwing up when they do this, the, the future people, when they take these passengers because they might leave one of their ray guns behind and they do it twice in this movie and it's just like for fuck's sake are we only seeing the incompetent crew is there a better crew out there watching it this time and and having and reading uh i read the short story and i read about half of the the novel um it actually dawned on me that um it's and it's not in the film but the context given by uh by john farley's stuff made me think well you know maybe this is this is a very slapped together operation you know this is not something that uh you know cheryl ladd hasn't had a long career doing this maybe this is you know pretty much like we've been able to isolate these incidents and maybe the entire history of uh of her job is a few months or something Mm. and uh they're just grabbing what they can because the world is deteriorating that quickly. They just have to grab a few and go just get out. I, I kind of like that reading of it because it, uh, it does make sense that they would be, uh, uh, as not necessarily incompetent, but <laughs> as, uh, ill, pre- Ill prepared for, uh, for a lot of what they encounter. Yeah, it's like they don't even necessarily know the reason why the planes went down because there's, we see two of these rescue operations and the second one that we see takes place in 1963 and it was a terrorist who, 
takes over the plane and they didn't necessarily know that that's why the plane went down and nor probably would they have. So they're not as uh, prescient about things as maybe they should be, but they don't necessarily know why stuff happened. They just know that at this date, at this time, this plane is going to go down and the technology they have allows them to open up a gate into that world and infiltrate it with these uh, this team of very comely lasses. They are the best looking people of the future world and they put them in uh, <laughs> stewardess outfits, which is uh, sorry, flight attendant outfits and let them infiltrate this. And I, that's the one thing I liked about the book as well was that, our main character, Louise Baltimore, she is really not as good looking as Cheryl Ladd, uh, but she wears a suit over her body to make her look like Cheryl Ladd or whoever she's trying to replace. This whole idea of her being as attractive from the future is, is explained um, because the real Louise Baltimore has like a prosthetic leg and doesn't have any ears left. And just all of this, this, these effects of what this future world does, everybody else that we see in the future looks really horrible, but they, the three of them, the three women look perfect. And luckily there's an explanation for why that is, but it's unfortunately it's only in the stories in the book. Well, they do mention a little bit in the movie, one of the many exposition dumps. You and your people get all the best food, all the best quarters, all our precious medicine. Do you realize what it costs to pamper you? I don't know. I mean, I'm watching a robot with real teeth and eyeballs. So I'm like, all right, fine. That's enough of an explanation. At least, at least it's addressed. You know, you have all these golems running the control center. You got to explain why you have, you know, white snake video girls running around. No, you don't. Yeah, the guys who are running the controls, they totally remind me of those dudes from like uh, Flash Gordon, where you take yep. off those things and their eye, eyes come out. Ah! Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you've got the guy, he reminds me of. Um, uh, the professor from UHF, cause he's got that kind of wild hair and stuff, but he's <laughs> in the wheelchair and he's got, yeah. the, the actor has a fantastic voice. Um, and I really like whenever he's speaking with her and he's so super cynical about things. I think it's, um, Brett Carver and the guy's name is Coventry and he is kind of in an in-between stage between being a human and being one of the things that we see in these big cylinders, which is their council. And we only really get a good close up of one of the members, but the rest of them are way worse. And the one member that we see, this woman who's kind of got like skin stretched over her face where she used to have skin, she kind of reminds me of like maybe somebody that would be on Doctor Who, either as a, a villain or or possibly a good guy, but mostly villain, I would say. Feels like a lot of Brazil influence going on there, too. And also, like, yeah, I was going to say Hellraiser was a, a nice movie about nice people. And there's this weird thing, too, where all the people in the future have cities as their names. So, like I said, Louise Baltimore, and then you've got, I swear, in the 
in the screenplay, they go so far as to have a Nathan Detroit, which I really appreciate it. <laughs> but then you've got, you know, all of these other people with uh, different cities for their names. And I was like, okay, that that's kind of interesting. And I'm wondering if they represent the different cities or if they just, at some point, they took cities as names to remember the past because they probably don't have too many things left in this world. Oh, like where their families came from, like in the past. Yeah, that that's an interesting idea. It makes sense if if almost everybody's gone, and they all and they all look like the dusty people from that 1984 Apple ad. Wow, that was good. That was a good pull. They do look like some of the some of the people do look like that. And then there's that one there's that one dude that looks like he stepped out of Cloud Atlas, so he was way ahead of his time. He had all that blue on his face and everything. Very, very different designs to most of the most of the background people, which I found interesting. Did you see Scott Thompson in there? Yes, well, that was <laughs> fantastic. I was so happy. So yeah, Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall is one of the technicians in the future, and you've got Coventry on one side of the screen, and then you've got Scott Thompson on the other side of the screen. And I don't even know if he has any lines or anything, but I was so happy that it was him. Yeah, he says something, and it's just like, you know, generic, extra, with a line type stuff. I'm trying to get my SAG card. So that's all happening in the future, and in the present, like I said, it's kind of the CSI for the NTSB, just to use as many acronyms as I possibly can. And that, I, you know, that's an interesting part to me, because, and we do stick with that for the first full act of the movie. We know something is up but we're not we're not sure exactly what it is because Cheryl Ladd as Louise Baltimore is there and she interacts with Chris Christopherson who plays Bill Smith and I call him Bill you know he he might prefer to go by William but I call him Bill cuz that's how I roll Edward um you don't mind if I call you Edward no not at all no because it does seem to worry some people not quite sure why perhaps I'm a little sensitive so I do take the precaution of asking on these occasions no no that's fine so Edward it is splendid Sorry to have brought it up. Yeah. No, no, Edward, it is. Well, thank you very much indeed for being so helpful. And sometimes it's more than my job's worth. Quite. It makes it rather difficult to establish a rapport, to, to put the other person at his ease. Quite. Quite. It's a little point, but it does seem to matter. Still, less said, the better. Um, Ted, when you first went in the film, uh, you don't mind if I call you Ted? I mean, as opposed to Edward. No, no, everyone calls me Ted. Splendid. Because it's, uh, it's much shorter, isn't it? Yes, it is. Much less formal. Yes. Fine. Well, we'll be... Oh, yes. Eddie Baby, when you first... Start, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't like being called Eddie Baby. She interacts with him and seems scared and runs away. And it's just this kind of really strange moment in the film. The other strange moment for me is when they're at the crash site and there's a professor out there. And it's like... Why are you guys allowing this professor to be at this crash site? This seems kind of strange to me, but okay. But apparently he is a big fan of crash sites. They know that he's been to a lot of these different crash sites. And that's uh, Professor Mayer, who's played by Daniel J. Travanti, who I think is quite a few young years younger than Chris Christopherson at this moment, but is made up to look like he's older. And I kept thinking maybe we would see a young Daniel J. Travanti at some point because of the very obvious old age makeup, but no, we don't. When he when he asked uh, Christopherson, he's like, "I'll go if you want," and he's like, uh, "It doesn't matter. 
Like, all right, I, it, 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 but it, but it speaks so much to his character of like, yeah, it really doesn't matter. And I'm just tired. I want to go to sleep. Can we just get this going? He really does play a burned out investigator really well. I thought. I like the, uh, the bit there where they, they pull all the bodies into that, uh, gymnasium for identification and things like that. And that gymnasium is decked the fuck out for a dance. It's like a, thousand color coordinated balloons in there and things of that and that the guy says we've only got this place for two days there's a dance in there and like yeah they're gonna find a new place for all these bodies rather than find a new place for the dance <laughs> but it uh it, it made me think has there ever been a haunted midwestern high school haunted dance movie you know where it's like just there were all these bodies stored in here at one point and uh, a lot of horrible stuff stored in here. And uh, it just seemed like, a, I don't know, it seemed like a, a direction that uh, I'd like to see something go. I kept being reminded of, well, there were two things that kept coming to mind. One was an episode of, I think it was Fringe. It might have been X-Files, but I'm pretty sure it was Fringe. I'm sure they both have had airline crashes that needed investigation and then you see all the bodies laid out what we know right now is that the plane designated as flight 549 lost radio contact tonight at 1900 hours edt and subsequently crashed into a wooded area approximately 30 miles from albany new york we got something simmons patched me into public address wilson sent over the black box recording the last 60 seconds of the flight play it New York Center, this is Virtus Air 718 Heavy. We have a report that But the other thing that I kept being reminded of was Sherlock, where Mycroft Holmes is setting up this whole thing for a plane crash, and they were replacing all of the passengers in the plane with dead bodies. Millennium is a precedent for that. <laughs> but I doubt that Moffat's seen uh, Millennium. I, I could be wrong, but who knows? It's about time travel. You never know. He can mine stuff from everywhere. And that's one thing I liked about the book, too, is that every chapter is named after a particular time travel or has a line that refers to a time travel story that we've already seen before. Because Varley, John Varley, the writer of it, definitely knew his stuff when it came to that. And um, I, I, I mean, to go back to the book, I, I, I was really fascinated by it. And I liked the way that we went from chapter to chapter going between Bill Smith and Louise Baltimore. So we had co protagonists coming at things from their own way. Whereas in the movie, it's interesting because we start with him, we start with, with Bill Smith, and then we switch about halfway through and have Louise as our protagonist. And then we even see the same scenes replayed again from one to the other from their different points of view. Because the first time you see it, so she runs into him, is kind of scared, runs off, and then she runs into him again, like just maybe a couple hours later, a few minutes later in the movie, and they strike up a conversation, they go out to her car, there's pretty much a hard cut, and they're like in a post-coital situation, and it's just like, whoa, what the fuck happened here? <laughs> they went from zero to 60, they must really get horned up by airline crashes, Maybe it's kind of like a, you know, a J.G. Ballard kind of thing here, but... Oh, bunch of Cronenberg people. Well, come on. It's, it's Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a White Snake video, right? 
And this is prime Christofferson. I mean, this is 1989 Christofferson. He's still looking really good. I mean, he's not Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid good, but he's still looking mighty fine at this point. This one in that Trouble in Mind from the 80s. Those are my my go-to Christofferson in the 80s movies. I am glad that when we switch protagonists that we do get the fill-in on that scene, and it's not just them hopping into bed, that there's a lot more to it. And then we change to kind of this fish-out-of-water story of her trying to figure out what is going on in the past. And one thing that I it took me the longest time to figure out, the way that she sucks on cigarettes, I didn't realize that her air is so bad in the future that she has to just keep smoking in order to be able to breathe the air of the 20th century. I just kept going, wow, she smokes a lot. Morning, I'm Bounder of Adventure. Hello, I'm Smoke Too Much. Well, you'd better cut down a little then. I'm sorry? You'd better cut down a little then. Oh, I see. Smoke too much, so I'd better cut down a little then. Yes. I bet you get people making jokes about your name all the time, eh? No, I've never noticed it before. My favourite part of the whole thing is where, where he's like, I've never seen anybody smoke and eat before. And she just throws the cigarette across the room. Because she's so used to the automated lasers just disintegrating them. And they don't even get up to take care of it. They just laugh about it. And he's like, what the hell is going on? I like you. <laughs> well, I like that the, uh, the first time you see him in bed, and it's he's been our protagonist, he's talking about how weird she is. And yeah. you're like, man, what did we miss? Why, you know, why did you cut out the weird stuff? But then you come back and see everything from her point of view. And, and uh, yeah, she's pretty weird. And unnecessarily so, I got to say. When uh, he calls a taxi and she says, oh, let's just take my car and, you know, steals a car out of it. It's like, that seems like a really unnecessary risk uh, for this vital mission to uh, why not just let him get a taxi and, and seduce him in a taxi. Got to steal a car and, and, and drive like crazy. Well, maybe that's what she knew would turn him on. And they never uh, really address. I mean, we see the, the laser things pick out. The, the trash they throw away in the future, but n- no explanation. Um, do you know why they did? I don't, if, if they explain that in the book, I didn't get to that part yet. Me so. neither. No, I no idea what's going on there. Cause I mean, this sure would make sports pretty complicated, I guess. Anytime you throw something. <laughs> it did make for a surprisingly comedic moment though. I was, uh, that was nice. I have to say though, going back real quick, um, you can tell this is a, uh, and I hate to bring this part up, but a pre nine 11 movie, the hijacker on the plane is like a, it's a white dude. And he's like, take me to Des Moines. And he had a gun. He had a gun, which obviously you could, uh, at that point in time in 89, I mean, you could bring a, a Puma through security if you really tried, but. Well, don't forget this is 1963 as well. Oh, right. 63. Yeah. Which I'm, I kept thinking like, oh my God, they're going back to 1963. This is going to have something to do with Kennedy. That was nice to see that it it didn't, that they kept it within their own history of what they were doing. When they're also, I don't know, either smart or cheap when it came to the future world, because it pretty much all takes place in that one location. And we don't necessarily know 
what the outside world looks like. So like, it's interesting that Michael Anderson also directed Logan's run and they all lived in the, in the bubble. And so you don't know what's going on outside that we get the one shot of outside. And it's just like, what the hell is going on here? Where was all of the people walking into the dome. This seems really out of place here. Well, you had that scene. Well, you had that scene. Seventies like rock album. It totally did. Yeah. I have to say, though, he has two movies with two maybe not so great, but iconic looking robots. Yeah, we should talk about Sherman, who I didn't realize was named after Sherman and Mr. Peabody. I found out that the guy who did the makeup for Sherman also did the makeup for the Tin Man from The Wiz. And it makes so much sense because he really does have that same kind of vibe going on. How How is a Sherman robot not a million memes by now? <laughs> he does that little wah wah face so many times. I just I was so excited when I found out that Robert Joy was in this movie because I love him so much, and then you can't even tell that it's him being, being Sherman because I mean I barely recognized his voice. And for folks listening at home, Robert Joy, you have seen him a hundred times, and maybe you know him, maybe you don't, but he has been. All over the place. I mostly when I um, when I say his name to uh, my wife, I'm just like you know the medical examiner from CSI New York. She's like, oh okay, but for me, he's always like desperately seeking Susan kind of guy. Oh, the first role I remember him actually remember him being in was um, um, Land of the Dead. Oh, nice. That was a good yeah. one. But apparently, he also showed up at the end of Alien versus Predator Requiem. Luckily, I've erased most of that movie from my mind. His part was really good, but that's, you know, also coming off of an hour and a half of Alien versus Predator Requiem. Pretty much anything near the end of that movie is good because it's close to the end. But yeah, I wasn't necessarily impressed by that costume. It just looks so damn cheap. It did, but didn't it? It, it just kind of fit the whole... Let's get a cherry picker in here and who cares? Let's not hide the lights. If they could have expanded on the future stuff a little more, it definitely felt like they were a rogue group that were just kind of trying this to save the, and everybody else had given up and their, their council underground could have been like, you know, this is the six smartest people and two brains with eyeballs that we could find. Cause I don't know. It didn't totally feel like a, like a, like a world government. They were. It, they kind of felt like an advisory board in a way. I think Chris, you might have brought up Brazil, and this world that they're in kind of reminds me of another movie that you and I talked about, Jed, which was Twelve Monkeys, and the way that they have the the council there, and yeah, they don't seem to be the most put together group in the world. Yeah, it's another eco disaster time travel movie, which is pretty fascinating. Speaking of another movie we talked about, it reminded me some of Wolfen too, where the uh, the idea of as your technology increases in, in sophistication and in quality, uh, your biology becomes more decrepit, almost in, in equal measure. So they can they can do these you know skin suits and and laser uh, cigarette removal and you know all the time travel stuff. Uh, you know, what they can't do is uh, grow an attractive amount of hair anymore or uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. We've got hair plugs and all that, but 
now. What we don't have is time travel. Um, mm. But apparently, we'll we'll make the switch uh, someday. <laughs> and, you know, not not just according to this movie, but according to a few. Well, yeah, Bruce Willis. Uh, he definitely needed some wigs in the Twelve Monkeys. So, Jed, you probably know a little bit more about Sherman than uh, Chris does, having read the book. Sherman has a very interesting role in the book. He has, well, first off, he has no face. She had his face removed because she didn't want any sort of empathy with a robot. And Sherman is so empathetic to her that it knows when she needs to be fucked. And she likes to be fucked very hard and very often by Sherman. And it's just kind of uncomfortable, all of the sex scenes that for they have. Hours. Yes, for three hours. <laughs> for three hours. Yeah, that is absolutely my, my favorite part of the book. <laughs> I was like, why isn't this in the movie? Why is this not in the movie? Uh, I guess it's not in the short story. There's nothing like it in the short story. And I guess the, he started writing the screenplay based on the short story. Talk about a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's even a line where she says that she would occasionally like put people's faces onto Sherman if she wanted to imagine that it was somebody else fucking her. She'd gone through history books. She'd gone through all the history books she had and, and had intercourse with uh, everybody in history. Why is this not in the movie? I know. Talk about a montage, right? It'd be like the sex montage I, from uh, Deadpool, but it'd be like, oh, Alexander, look upon your works and weep. <laughs> and since she'd be technically the only human in the room, you can play Here I Go Again on my own. There's also something that I was very surprised by that they can look into the past. And so there's a moment where Trevanti is giving a lecture about time travel. And I was like, oh, okay, we're back with this character, which was kind of odd because he just seems to be out of the loop the rest of the movie. He's there giving this lecture. And then I was super surprised when they cut to Chris Christopherson, who's there. And then I was even more surprised when they cut and the people in the future are watching the lecture. And he's talking about the whole grandfather paradox, or in this case, the father paradox. And I think he's hoping to help out people in the audience who might not be as familiar with time travel as they should have been. But knowing that we are in a post back to the future world, everybody should know how time travel works or doesn't work. Changing the past doesn't change the future. Look, we go back, we get the stones before Thanos gets them. Thanos doesn't have the stones. Problem solved. Bingo. That's not how it works. Well, that's what I heard. Wait, but who? Who told you that? Star Trek, Terminator, Time Cop, Time After Time. Quantum Leap. Wrinkle in Time, Somewhere in Time. Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Basically, any movie that deals with time travel. This is known. I don't know why everyone believes that, but that isn't true. Think about it. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future. And your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. Exactly. So Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit? The Trevanti character, Professor Mayer, I, he's an interesting character because he just shows up at very specific times and I still don't necessarily know what he's doing there because we have the first time travel heist in 89, which is what starts the whole story. And after, 
I think uh, after their date that she has with him, he goes back to the um, warehouse and manages to find one of these ray guns, which they call a stunner. And he opens up the side and shocks himself. And then the time gate opens and the women run in. And that's her first time seeing him because of the way that her time works versus his. And so she takes the gun and is just like, hey, we didn't crash the plane. Don't sweat it. <laughs> but that, <laughs> but that kind of ruins his life. He seems to go on like a bender. And then we see him at work and he's giving this really impassioned speech about how he got shocked by this thing. And there are people from the future and you're watching this going, oh man, he is not going to have a job tomorrow. Something happened in the hangar. I found something. I think it knocked me out. And they came and took it from me. Now they're watching me. I can feel it. They can go anywhere. Look anywhere. You first watch it, and it's this montage of his life kind of spiraling. And I assumed that it was years, you know? But uh, when he catches up to the doctor and they have their big moment together and she shows up uh, to explain everything to him and retrieve the stunner. She mentions that it's 1989 still. So apparently this took a series of weeks or at maximum months uh, before right. Yeah, his whole life was just ruined. And by the time, you know, he's like, nobody's going to miss me if I go with you into the future. So, <laughs> It's pretty bleak, dudes. So we should talk about the second time heist, which is the one in 63 that we've talked a little bit about, which is the hijacking. And this woman, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Melbourne. She stops the hijacker, sacrifices herself, gets shot in the belly. And then there's all of this conversation that takes place very quickly thereafter. And there's a, a young boy there. So we're watching this movie just going, okay, this kid is talking way too much. He's got to be somebody. And I kept thinking, oh, that's probably Professor Meyer. But then again, I was like, well, everybody dies in the crash. So how can this be Professor Meyer? It can't, and it can't be Bill. He would have remembered all this stuff. But luckily, Professor Meyer in 1989, he somehow has the stunner. And then he basically opens up a repressed memory from Bill Smith, who suddenly remembers that he was there. I've been working on a puzzle for 25 years. You may be the missing piece. That's it. Where'd you get it? It was in the wreckage of a 707 that crashed in upstate New York in 1963. That just seems kind of... That whole scene just doesn't play for me. It was her. I remember now. She told me everything would be all right. She knew you'd survive. It makes sense that that would spark... Uh, you know, Chris Christopherson's interest in investigating crashes and things like that. And also, if you committed to his point of view, that would make for a really cool, romantic time travel adventure where he's maybe obsessed with this 
beautiful woman that he saw as a as a kid, uh, you know, in a very traumatic moment of his life, and she said something to him that was meaningful, and and he survived this thing, and you know, years later he sees her again and and again, and you know, he's kind of pers- like that would make a really cool story. It doesn't really make any sense that that yeah, I assumed that was going to be Travanti as well. I, I forget. It's like every time I see the movie, I forget. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, this is Chris Christopherson. Yeah, it, it seems like it would have made a lot more sense to be uh, Dr. Meyer. Well, the thing with Dr. Meyer, too, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but there was one article I read about the making of the movie, and the author was saying, oh, they changed it. It was... Dr. Meyer, his daughter was on a flight and disappeared. And I don't know how he might have figured out that it wasn't her. Maybe he saw the body and realized it wasn't his daughter or something. And that's why he becomes obsessed with plane crashes and time travel. And he, because he pretty much has it all figured out at this point in the movie. And he becomes the exposition dump for a little while before Cheryl Ladd comes in and takes over the duty. There's no real reason why Travanti is so obsessed with these airline crashes and with time travel and just his whole life's work seems like it should pin to something personal rather than, I don't know, maybe he, I don't know how he got the stunner. I don't know if he found it at like a yard sale or somebody said, hey, this was in this crash from 1963 because he's... He's a little bit older, allegedly, than Christopherson, so say he was maybe in his 20s at this time, but yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't fit together for me. Picked it up on pre-day. And it also doesn't make sense that he ends up killing himself with the stunner. It's like, what What are you doing? Why is this? What happened? Because it just seems like it comes out of nowhere. Did you guys have any reason why he would have suicided right then? I don't get the feeling it was intentional the thing stuns people it shocks them to death and it burns holes in terrorist chests so like it's not a stunner it's a straight up like particle beam weapon in the book they do talk about that that they switch between all those different settings on it mm. to, depending on the amount of damage they're gonna do i you know speaking of chris christopherson's story could have been you know one really cool story uh cheryl ladd's story also could have been i mean in the story in the short story as well as in the uh the novel she's uh she's just a complete badass Mm. and uh, a really fun you know sort of uh soldier to follow uh on on these missions that she's going through and she's totally kind of hard-boiled too you know she kills people right and left and talk about how she has uh even in the future, she has a license to kill pretty much anybody she wants to for any reason because her work is so important that there's no no questioning her. I could have spent some time watching that movie, too, <laughs> you know, even without the robot sex. She was a regular Jack Death in the future. I really liked her her character and yeah you're right she was totally hard-boiled she reminded me a lot too of um almost like the man with no name where it's just like very unscrupulous anything to get the job done the just you know yeah sacrificing people right and left in order to be successful at what she needs to do and really 
in her mind, the fate of the human race is, uh, you know, on her shoulders. Though I like that she doesn't kid herself. She keeps looking at the other people that are around her, the ones who, like, um, I mean, she even makes mention that she basically uh, was going out with Coventry for a while, but just couldn't handle him. And she didn't like that he's pretty much just a body in a chair and that as people go along in their lives, they just keep disintegrating more and more. And she looks at the people in the council and she's like, that's going to be me one day. I'm just going to be a brain in a tank. It's grim. It's super grim. And, but yeah, I, I loved it. I, I really wanted to spend more time in that future world and spend more time with Louise Baltimore. And I have to say, I like Christofferson. I like Bill Smith in here, but I liked her more. Though I know some people had problems with Cheryl Ladd's acting. I thought she did a really good job. Yeah. I mean, there's reasons for her to be stilted and out of place and things like that, especially because, you know, not only is she out of time, but, uh, she's not, you know, like I said, the character in the book is this kind of badass soldier. She's not like the idea of uh, human 20th century human uh, seduction and things like that is, is a lot different than uh, anything she's used to. She's she's not used to, you know, dressing this way and, and trying to uh, interest a man in the way she has to in the in the 20th century. It's a um, so, yeah. Uh, I think it makes sense how kind of her performance makes sense. And that she can look at the people in the 20th century and be like, your problems are so nothing compared to my problems. You know, you're, you're worried about your cigarette. Yeah. You're worried about who's going to be chosen on the bachelor. I'm worried about where my next meal comes from. So we should probably talk about the end of this film, which I didn't realize for a lot of years that there were two endings to this, though I watched them side by side. I had one up on my computer and one up on the TV, and really it's just like two, three shots are different, and that's about it. Yeah, Meyer kills himself. We are starting a time quake now because Meyer was supposed to live another 10 years and some of the things that he does in the future are very important. So they end up going back to the future and Bill Smith joins her and then they say, okay, we've got to wake up all the passengers and we're going to send them into the time tunnel and they're going to come out, I don't know, a thousand years in the future or something. Hopefully everything is better by then. And when they 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 do that, and then they jump into the tunnel themselves, and then it becomes a little bit of a different movie as far as, is it going to be shots of clouds in a sunrise, or is it going to be them holding each other and then tilting up to the sunrise? I mean, it's really very minor differences between there. And then you've got, in both versions, you've got Sherman doing this Winston Churchill quote about this is not the beginning of the end this is the end of the beginning i don't know necessarily why they had two different versions other than maybe the one where they're hugging and kissing was too cheesy but i was fine with both yeah the uh the differences and i don't know why because i've got the dvd and when you watch the bonus you know the the alternate ending on the dvd it takes you back like 10 minutes you watch the last 10 minutes of the movie over again i keep waiting for something to be different and it's the last 10 seconds of the movie that are any different like my god could i have to watch all of this to get there yeah 
it didn't make much sense, but I was thinking about uh, the the seduction scene in uh, the hotel room when he's got a fruit basket from management and she eats an apple and, you know, like really chomps into it. And then they kiss and, and the, she slowly lets go of the apple, the shot of her doing And it's very suggesting of like an Adam and Eve sort of mm. thing. And so I think having that image of them nude it, and they're like the new Adam and Eve of, of the, um, you know, the far, the restart on the human race, uh, far into the future. Um, Sherman had told her that she was pregnant with his child. And, uh, so I think it made more sense to have that, but I can understand why some people may have seen it. Some studio exec saw it and said, Ooh, God, let's not send them out on that image. But, uh, <laughs> but I think thematically it probably worked with the Adam and Eve thing. I don't know why she can have his child because at one point she very pointedly says that she can't have children and it would make sense that she can't have children being in this dystopian future, but okay. And then that Sherman knows that she's pregnant. It's like, Oh, well that's surprising. I mean the, the Sherman that we know from the book would probably know because he's so empathic to her needs, but yeah, it just seemed kind of strange that he would know that she's pregnant and bring that up. Yeah. Sherman. He didn't seem jealous. <laughs> I think that there might be a little bit longer of a shot of Sherman before the world explodes and he melts or whatever. I noticed in the script that he actually has a line before he dies. He's like on fire and tells uh, Louise, I think she's already through the portal. And he says, I love you, Louise. And that was it. But yeah, so robot love definitely happening, happening in the future. They never give us any reason why you know at first she says she's not going through and sherman is not going through but they never say why i mean sherman doesn't stay behind and do anything that's got to be done right yeah you go on i'll close the gate or something like that nothing like that going on and uh no talk of paradoxes or something like that if she goes through uh, it's just a, it seems like kind of a false dramatic pause, you know, I can't go through, well, then I'm not going through. Okay. I'll go through. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't, didn't work very well for me. Uh, I didn't <clears throat> read that far into the book, so I don't know, uh, if there was any hint at, at that. I'm just glad that part wasn't dragged out longer. I mean, between Christofferson and, and, and Baltimore, I get it. I get it. You, you're trying to create a little tension that we know isn't actually going to happen. And you two will go together. And then they turning to Sherman and he's like, there's no place for me there. <laughs> All right. Fine. See you later. No droids allowed. We don't want their kind in here. You creep me out with your eyes and teeth. When I first saw it, I thought he was, cause he has, he, it looks like he has, um, braces on him. Uh, that's like part of the, part of the, the body of the, the suit. Like, like if your bones were crushed, you know, to, to hold yourself in place. And then he's got organic parts. I thought maybe he was a different version of what happened to people. And so he was more of a cyborg. But I like that it's kind of it's it's a little open ended as to what exactly he is. But there is another one of them walking around at one point. I I just like that I like that they spent 
more time in the future than say terminator did when the terminator future was super interesting and you only get like a fleeting glimpse of it uh, you get enough here to to kind of understand what they're doing oh don't worry chris we go back to skull beach in terminator five or six whatever one it is so long and we stay there for way too long okay skull beach sounds awesome though i will say that that's where kong has his um beach blanket bingo right do they have a uh, captain geach and the shrimp shack shooters playing that's my favorite band name my favorite fake band name here's the thing we're not the wonders right now we're captain geach and the shrimp shack shooters i try to i try to bring that up at least once a month just because i love saying it <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third... A little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. You guys look like what do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey, everyone. I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays we drop our homework cast episode. Each week the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review. Like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of xander cage hey and i'm the disco dork in addition to our regularly scheduled programming we have special guests film festival and comic convention coverage interview episodes and more subscribe to us on itunes podbean youtube and other podcast platforms just search in the mouth of dorkness or it modcast where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture hey do you like movies of course you do you're listening to mike white's phenomenal podcast the projection booth 
I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards. In 2016, is a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we were back and we were talking about Millennium. And yeah, we've talked a little bit about the short story. The short story is basically just one scene. It is the scene of them on the original hijack and the stuff going on. I guess I can't remember if uh, that's the one where Melbourne is shot or not, but it definitely doesn't go as planned and they leave something behind a twonky behind and yada, yada, yada. But it's just that one scene. And then that was what 77, I think. And that was in Isaac Asimov's sci-fi magazine as a short story. And then after that, from what I've read, Farley turned it into a treatment and then wrote the novelization no. Then he wrote the script off of the treatment. The script was being optioned by, uh, well, it was supposed to be uh, directed by Doug Trumbull, but then Trumbull ran into all kinds of trouble with uh, Brainstorm, which you will hear about in just a few weeks on the show. And then it ended up going into turnaround for like 10 years before it was finally picked up. There are a bunch of other people that were associated with it, Richard Rush for a little while, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that he ended up doing the novelization off of the screenplay, though you would never necessarily know because the novelization has so much detail to it. And then it's his script that they ended up shooting, though there was another writer involved at one point, but they threw that out and let Varley do the script. So this is his first screenplay, and it ends up being successfully translated to a movie. Though Varley's an interesting dude. He wrote a couple other screenplays, and I think he even adapted a Heinlein book to a screenplay, and I would have loved to have seen that, because he keeps being compared to Heinlein, and I, I love Robert Heinlein's stuff. Yeah, definitely uh, reading the, like I said, reading the book and, and things like that, my my favorite bits of the book were the stuff that that's not in the movie. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in there, and a lot of really fun stuff. You know, the movie, uh, like I said, the first time I saw it was very felt kind of let down by it like oh this isn't what i was promised and or what i thought i was getting and now i i enjoy it uh in on a certain level but i still reading this reading the short story and, and reading the, the novel i'm like this there's a lot here that could make for some cool cool movies and, it, and it's it's not there it's not on screen yeah, if anything, it seems to suffer from that same thing that Zardoz does, where it's like there's too many ideas that are going on. I won't say that there are necessarily too many ideas in the movie, but there are definitely, like you were saying, there's a wealth of ideas in the book. 
this watching of this has made me really want to see or read more of Varley's stuff. I didn't realize until doing research for this that he was the one that wrote the short story that Overdrawn at the Memory Bank was based on, which is always a favorite episode of MST3K, but I will be absolutely serious that I actually really like that movie quite a bit. I was actually a little upset that they did that on MST3K because it's one of those like, this is actually pretty good. You guys shouldn't necessarily be making fun of this. Is, am I the only one who watched the the movie now and thought, oh my God, that's where the idea for, it looks like a vape pipe. I mean, that's, that must be what they're <laughs> does, going for yeah. now in the design. <laughs> oh, I can totally see that. Like, maybe that's why Trevanti killed himself. He's about to suck on it or something. <laughs> suck it and see. Yeah. Wow. No, yeah, I can totally see that. I thought they were looking like brass knuckles for a little bit. I don't know how you would necessarily use that. It just it didn't look very ergonomic, you know. I like the uh, I like Cheryl Ladd's um, shower away clothing. You know, didn't get into the skin suit, but it did show her in the shower, and you know she steps in fully clothed, and the the clothing just disintegrates off of her in the water. Uh, and it's kind of a cool effect. I mean, it was kind of meaningless. Uh, <laughs> But it was a cool effect. I like that. I liked her super duper punk rock hairdo in the future. It, it, like when it was her and the two other girls, I was just like, man, they look like they're a band ready to start playing. Especially like Sherman on that cherry picker with them. I was just like, oh yeah, and Sherman can dance or maybe he can do the keyboards or something. The keytar. With a tie. Oh, <laughs> nice. Maybe it's got a keyboard on the tie too. Oh. Yes. Really, he's going for it. He's grabbing his art. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. What my planet? Muzm 247 in Turi. Galactica Beta. Spiral. Вот машинка перемещения в пространстве. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the Russian sci-fi film Kinzadza. Until then, I want to thank this week's hosts, Chris and Jedediah. So, Jedediah, what is up with you, sir? Oh, nothing. Just uh, just paying bills. So, go buy my book if you can find it. Please do that. Please buy several. It is almost Christmas time. It would be a perfect stocking stuffer. That's right. For people you like or really hate. 
oh, honey, you got me Peckerwood by Jedediah Ayers. How did you know I've always wanted this? And Chris, how is everything in your world, sir? Hanging in there, you know. We, uh, we're coming up on our 12th year of Outside the Cinema. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel for movies now. No, I'm Because I've always been scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> that bottom just keeps going down, though. You'd think there would be a bottom, but there really isn't. Right now, we're, we're doing our, our end of year cram where we're actually watching, uh, movies from this year, which goes against everything we've stood for. But it's more of a, it gives Bill, uh, the ability to, um, watch stuff like Midsummer and, um, what's the other one we're doing this week? Hell House 3? Cause he never would get to them otherwise. So if we do it for the show, we get to watch them. That's kind of good because this week I don't actually have to uh, watch anything because I've seen them both. Uh, that's a first. Are you going to wear your bear suit to the uh, recording? I was just going to wear a flower crown. Mm, very nice. And and take a lot of LSD. Are you guys still doing <laughs> the whole like live in studio broadcasting? We stopped for a while and now we are experimenting with Twitch, but it's settings on his computer that need to be um, tweaked. And so finding time to do that is, is difficult, um, with him out, you know, being a, uh, 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 cameraman and assistant director and second unit and, you know, being all filmy. So takes up a lot of time, but yeah, we're trying to, uh, actually record video to have for people to watch of us just sitting there, apparently, and me petting his dog. I don't mind that part. Uh, that part's fine. I'll pet the dog the whole time I'm there. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Now.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.